This is Sit Rep on VFBS with Kate Chabot. United States will use military force unilaterally if necessary when our core interests demand it. Obama's big foreign policy speech, where does Britain fit in? And while we're on it, how much does it cost for the UK to go to war these days? In Afghanistan, Sandhurst in the Sand prepares to welcome its first female recruits and it's D-Day minus eight. Barack Obama says the U.S. must lead on the world stage, but also show restraint before rushing into military operations overseas. Speaking at West Point Military Academy in New York, the U.S. president said America has frequently rushed into war without thinking. Since World War II, some of our most costly mistakes came not from our restraint, but from our willingness to rush into military adventures without thinking through the consequences without building international support and legitimacy for our action, without leveling with the American people about the sacrifices required. Tough talk often draws headlines, but war rarely conforms to slogans. He went on to say this doesn't mean they'll shy away from military action in future. The United States will use military force unilaterally if necessary when our core interests demand it. When our people are threatened, when our livelihoods are at stake, when the security of our allies is in danger. In these circumstances, we still need to ask tough questions about whether our actions are proportional and effective and just. International opinion matters. But America should never ask permission to protect our people, our homeland, or our way of life. BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee is here as ever. Hello, Christopher. What do you make of what he had to say? There are two aspects of it. One, you've got to go back to 1946, when America, under an analyst at the time, gave the then-president this line, try and contain the Soviet Union, right? And containment, not isolation, containment has been the watchword. This this speech could have been uh, read, given by President Harry Truman, probably by Eisenhower, certainly by Kennedy since then. In other words, there is an American slogan or military a military slogan which says, don't do stupid stuff, mm. right? And this is what it's all about. Uh, he, he is fundamentally um, saying our policies have been moderately successful, but we will continue to go abroad to defend our policies and our way of life if it threatens the United States. The important thing for us is that when they do go, as far as the Americans are concerned, we might just well be coming with them. Mm. So from what you're saying, there is no marked change in direction by the US in its foreign policy? There isn't, except for one thing. The only thing new that was in that speech, I mean, that stepped outside of what another president might have said, was uh, he wants a thing called counter-terrorism partnership, which doesn't exist at the moment, never Mm. has existed. What he wants is that Congress should vote $5 billion. And so you bring people like the Turks, uh, the Iraqis, the Lebanese, 
uh, and the French and the British, if necessary, to America, and you train them in counterterrorism, because that will say, if we get that right, then America doesn't have to go to war to fix what is broken. I suppose it's almost surprising that kind of thing hasn't been done before. It's amazing that it hasn't been done before, but don't forget that America is really... Uh, it's only a decade since America's got into this sort of war, which people call asymmetric war, counter-terrorism war, or whatever. You go, mm. go back to 9-11, and you start to rethink. The big problem, again, is that just think the size of the American military intelligence system. You can't just change it. You can't just change your policy, because the fundamental policy is this. If, if people get in the way of American policy, the American way of life, they threaten the American system, whether it's commercially or whatever. And they're always thinking about oil, for example. Um, if, if people do that, then we'll go and do something about it. And also, we will try and do it a legal way. So when the Iraqis went into Kuwait, the importance of that was that the Americans went to the United Nations, they got United Nations permission to go in and kick Iraq mm. out of it, just as Truman went to the United Nations, I wouldn't have thought of doing anything else, went to the United Nations to go and kick the North Koreans out of South Korea in 1950. Interesting, I suppose Truman wouldn't have been talking much about drone warfare, but he did have a few things to say about that, didn't he? He had a few things to say about that, and he, he, he basically says, listen, a lot of people might say this is a bad thing to do, it, it, it's, uh, it's creepy, it's, it's a departure in the way that we f traditionally fight wars, but we will do that, we will use these systems and we continue to use these systems. And don't forget who he was talking to. He was talking to the world. Mm. I mean, he, he may have been addressing West Point graduates or graduates, but don't forget also that since he made his last speech to, at West Point, a number of the guys who he spoke to last time were killed in Afghanistan. He's very aware of that, and, and I think he's genuinely uh, aware of it. So it's a, it's a tricky line to tread for him. How do you think it has gone down, both at home and abroad? I think that people will, uh, at home, Congress will look at, you, what he want this five billion for? We're supposed to be cutting a trillion out of the defence budget. Hmm. You know, that's the hard stuff. And that stuff. will come out of the defence budget, will it? That will, well, it will come out of the security budget, whether it comes out of the defence budget or mm. whether the security budget. But he, he wants, you know, billions uh, to fix. But in American terms, billions don't add up to uh, to, to very much. I think, basically, uh, whether Obama considers this true or not, uh, American policy hasn't done much to make the world a safer place in which to live. Mm. Uh, and that is the fundamental problem that he's got, is trying to say, look, this is what we've been doing, not only on his watch, but on uh, the watch of two f uh, previous presidents. Have we succeeded? And the answer is, we haven't succeeded in the ambition. Mm. But we got part way. He also confirmed their desire to keep nearly 10,000 troops in Afghanistan once a combat mission finishes at the end of the year. Yeah, but not for long. In, in terms, say, for another, another three years after that. How much does it cost the US to do that kind of I thing? I have no idea how much it will cost by the end of it, but the, 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 the cost increases are going at something like 6% a year. Now, if you think that your defence budget is only going up 3%, hmm. then you're in deficit all the time. And, you know, America wants to be out of Afghanistan just as they wanted to be out of Vietnam. And in the American mind, and this is generational, that Afghanistan has produced a, a blacker mark on presidential policy than Vietnam ever did. Mm. But the, the critics looking at this speech and making a, a, an assessment on, on the state of U.S. foreign policy, do you think it's strong, weak? Where do you put it? The state of U.S. 
policy is not isolationism, and that's what everybody fears. But don't forget, also, American foreign policy has shifted, as we've said for some time now, shifted not entirely to um, uh, the Far East, but generally to the Far East, with the exception of what's going on in Southeast Asia. The concentration is further north with China, uh, supporting Japan, South Korea against North Korea, etc. But all that has to happen is that something like Ukraine comes along, and then somebody looks at Putin and says, hey, hang on, we're supposed to be out of Europe. We don't have a problem with Europe anymore. And suddenly we've got a problem with Europe. But the other point of this is what do you do about the problem with Europe, just as what do you do about the problem with Syria. And mm. Obama is saying very, very, very clearly, America doesn't get involved in those things anymore. Well, let's talk now about the cost of war, because the price tag for UK military operations since the Cold War has been put at £34 billion. The figure was calculated by the Royal United Services Institute as part of a new book, Wars in Peace, British Military Operations Since 1991. It was written by Rusi Research Director Professor Malcolm Chalmers. Well, the first thing that stands out is that this is a period uh, with a remarkably large number of UK military interventions abroad. Uh, we identified 10 major interventions, which is unprecedented uh, in British history. Uh, and um, it's remarkable in particular because this took place in a time of general peace. After all, uh, this period was after the end of the Cold War. So Britain has been safer from military attack than it's ever been in its history, but yet we were more involved in military intervention overseas than we had been in the 1970s and 1980s. And we argue the two are in part related. It was partly because we had something of a strategic holiday, if you like, from major power rivalry, uh, that we were able to intervene in other places without the risks we would have had in the past. But that's been associated, particularly, I think, after 9-11, with an overextension of taking on objectives which were overambitious and perhaps not thought through enough and as a result the costs of military intervention in terms of casualties and in terms of money it were much greater in Afghanistan after 2006 in Iraq after 2003 than had been anticipated and that's I think led to a, a, a rethink certainly in our view it's not clear that either of those two interventions has been a strategic success in terms of Get, achieving strategic gain for the UK and its allies, which exceed the costs. But he says not all the interventions failed. What we argue in our book is that of the ten biggest interventions during this period, six were a strategic success. Uh, some were very successful indeed, and in particular, two of the large operations that were strategic successes were the operation to expel, expel Iraq from Kuwait, which was really important in terms of the international norm of not allowing annexation of territory by force, but also stabilising Saudi Arabia and the Western Gulf. And secondly, uh, the overthrow of the Taliban after 9-11 and their refusal to give up al-Qaeda and bin Laden was, again, very important in terms of international order. But what we also argue is that both in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, those initial successful operations uh, led... Uh, to further operations, more ambitious operations, which were much more mixed in their results. That was Professor Malcolm Chalmers from the Royal United Services Institute. Christopher, so, so he gives us six out of ten British military interventions. Yeah. Um, also, do you notice if you're talking about Iraq, uh, kicking out 
uh, Iraq from uh, Kuwait. Well, he doesn't say the important one of the important things about that. That was an international effort. They went to the United Nations for it. Mm. And so when you start saying how successful is something, you also have to talk about how legal was something in in international minds. Because if you don't get that right, then plays you, on the success. It plays on the success, but also uh, in in political terms at home, then people start to doubt the authority of your own government and you say, well, we led by the nose into something or did we do it properly? Mm. Does this in any way get close to explaining a difference between British military policy during the Cold War and after? Um, it, 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 it starts to in as much that at the end of the Cold War, it, I mean, the Cold War suddenly ended and the war came down and uh, British forces sort of said, well, hang on, we're all geared up really to, to, to fight the enemy that is this was the Soviet Union or still remains the Soviet Union. We have the same structure of army. And so what was going to happen, the important thing, that while you're going to these other wars like Iraq, uh, you know, let's get a tank into Iraq, justify that we've got tanks, for example, also having to change this, the structure and the doctrine at the same time as maintaining security. And that's very difficult. It's quite incredible that you can actually put a price tag on the, the cost of going to war, isn't it? Yeah, because it it's is. the aftermath. Presumably, the after effects are still there. Yeah, it, the cost it, is still there, isn't it? Oh yeah, and, and the the important thing is 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 the ongoing cost more than anything else, because what does that sort of free you up to do, etc. Good, if you can remember one thing: the the military doesn't go to war. Uh, the military is sent to war by by the political system. You know, the politicians sit there in Downing Street, for example, the cabinet, and say, we really don't like what's going on over there, or we don't like that guy, or we, we feel threatened by that. And they call in the chiefs of staff, says, we've got to hang up about this, these people down there. Can you, can you put something together and go and sort it? Now, it may be something small, which you've been requested to do, like Sierra Leone, or maybe a big coalition jobby to be done, uh, say Iraq or whatever. And that's why you go back to what we were talking about earlier with Obama. Obama declares his foreign policy statement We've got to take notice of it because we may be the people that stand alongside him to support his policy statement. We're going to make sure that our foreign policy interests are similar, if not the same, to America's. So what in the end makes a strategic success uh, in the six which Malcolm Chalmers said were? Um, well, I mean, it, they're all quite different. So one would be kicking out from Kuwait, but was the bringing down against Iraq, was, was the bringing down, for example, of, of Saddam a success uh, in military terms, it appeared to be. But you talk about you were talking about well, the, the costs go on afterwards. Uh, we left Iraq in such a state that you find it very, very difficult to justify the way it ended, but not necessarily what you did. Christopher, stay with us. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, more violence in eastern Ukraine. But when did Putin blink? Counting down to D-Day's 70th anniversary, we have a look ahead at next week's big events. The first intake of women into Afghanistan's officer academy arrive in the next few weeks. It's hoped the so-called Sandhurst in the Sand will turn out 100 female Afghan officers a year. Our reporter Sally Lockwood joins us now from our studio in Camp Bastion. Hello Sally, when will the first women cadets actually arrive? Hello Kate, well they'll arrive next month, literally in the next 
two to three weeks. And up until now, there have been two intakes of cadets so far, but they've all been men. They have 30 female cadets now arriving in this intake, a fantastically high number, um, and everything's ready to go for them now. Their accommodations are almost complete. I went to see it, and it's distinctive from all the others, and it's big high walls that surround it to protect to protect their privacy. It'll certainly be a change for the for the officer academy out at Carga, and it's it's uh, having having women there for the first time will be a, a big milestone. Indeed, a big step for a country where women's rights have historically been very poor. Yes, it will be a massive mindset change for them, but it's not a new phenomenon. There were women um, in the Soviet-sponsored army back in the 1980s, but that all changed when the Taliban came to power. And this first intake of female officer cadets is the first rung on the ladder to getting them involved in the service again. What will help women in Afghanistan is actually seeing them in the workplace, seeing them in positions of authority. That's what's going to help women in society here. And in that note, any Afghan instructors women? Yes, um, the female instructor training actually began back in March and they're all now qualified and ready to begin training the cadets when they arrived, obviously supported by their British mentors. I met one Afghan woman, Fatima, who's just 23 years old, and I saw her graduate last week as a personal training instructor, something that would have been unthinkable until in, in, recently in Afghanistan. And at the end of the ceremony, she performed in a group gymnastics display along with her male colleagues. I, I almost had to stop and remind myself when I, I was in Afghanistan, seeing a woman performing exercise in public with men. It was also really touching to see the close bond she'd formed with her British mentor, Kate. They were very similar in many ways, and she'd obviously learned a lot from her. I spoke to Kate about how she thought Fatima had got on. We didn't know how the press-ups would go, how the sit-ups would go, if, if, even if they'd do the physical training with, with the men. Um, she didn't have a problem with it. No fuss, got on with it. And she's now meeting the same um, fitness levels as uh, a female would in the British Army. What else do you think she's learned from you other than just the fitness side of things? Confidence, um, how to be confident in front of men. Um, I think that's the main thing, just to be a strong woman. So just tell us a bit more there, Sally, about um, issues regarding cultural differences. Well, from what Kate told me, they, they've sort of been having to learn as they go. This is an untrodden path for British mentors, and the cultural sensitivities differ from person to person. So to start with, they weren't sure if Fatima would be able to perform exercises on the floor, for example, or even work closely with men. But it seems it worked out well for her, and it, and it wasn't too troublesome. Um, but it's really a case of assessing each person on an individual basis for now until they can build up a pattern of what to expect. However, the work of the British mentors at the academy is really versatile and they adapt to Afghan needs in ways as and when they have to. And what kind of women want to join the Afghan National Army? Well, there is a challenge in recruiting women. There are massive cultural hurdles and physical hurdles. There are all sorts of problems that women have in joining the military here. But there are women out there who want to do this. They would value the salary that they'd get from joining the military and they want a job. They want to participate in society. And thanks to the improvements since the Taliban have been removed from power, there are now women coming out of the education system with the qualities that are necessary for officers in the army. There are those people out there. It's just getting the message to them that the opportunity exists. That's the challenge at the moment. So just tell us what the challenge is in terms of the target for the numbers of women in the ANA. 
Well, that's right. They've set themselves a very high target of 10% of women in the army here. Now, that's a huge amount when you consider that many European armies aren't anywhere near that in female manpower. Um, I put that to Major Claire Brown, who's the architect behind the female training course, and this is what she had to say. Particularly for Afghanistan, they've set themselves a very difficult target when the place of women in society is that much behind European society. I think in the timelines that they've given themselves, 10% isn't likely to be reached. Um, But even if we can make a difference, if we can get it up to 1% or 2%, that's success. Now, Claire's been pivotal in getting this first group of women through the door at the Officer Academy in Carga. It's the first rung on the ladder for getting women back into the force. It's unlikely, as she said, that the 10% target will be hit in the near future, if ever. But as Claire said there, women working and being in positions of authority, such as army officers, is already a huge leap forward for Afghanistan in terms of progress, and it gives them something very real to build on here. All right, BFBS reporter Sally Lockwood and Cam Bassin, thank you. Pro-Russian fighters in eastern Ukraine have shot down a military transport helicopter, killing 14 troops, including an army general. The aircraft was hit during heavy fighting between government forces and pro-Russian separatists in the city of Slovyansk. Uh, Christopher, uh, things do seem to be getting worse rather than better. Well, rather than worse, things don't seem to be getting better, if you put it. But it on Staying those, as bad as they yeah, were with they, new incidents every, <clears throat> t- every day. That, that, that's right. Um, but one thing that has happened, I mean, if, is is that um, there is a sense that at last people are talking um, more openly than once they were. If you remember, about three or four weeks ago, we started to get a sense that, for example, the the the, the Russian foreign minister was using language which wasn't so belligerent. And mm. um, we sensed, therefore, there must have been change right at the top. But then, how do you translate that change at the top in, say, Moscow onto the streets of eastern East, eastern uh, Ukraine? There are definitely... We've now, def- we've now seen through shootings... Uh, what happens with shooting is you go into hospitals and you see bodies and you see wounded and you can actually see their their documents and their mm. passports and we're finding that there are definitely Russians in there. There's a lot of Churchans in there. But can Moscow control this? Well, we get a better idea next week because this is when Putin, uh, President Putin, will be in Paris for the D-Day celebrations and he is going to be talking to uh, the French president. He's possibly, and it will be last minute in the margins, talking to Obama. Mm. And this is face-to-face, maybe David Cameron as well. And I think that is... Ignore the shootings and the, uh, and what's going on and the battles that are going on at the moment. Uh, it really is next week is going to be the crucial time where we'll discover not what can we done, what 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 is possibly going to be done and what power Putin actually has now in Eastern Europe. This is BFBS. Sit rep. Well, as Christopher was just saying, by this time next week, commemorations to mark the 70th anniversary of the D-Day landings will be well underway in France. World, world leaders, members of the royal family, and of course veterans will be paying their respects at various events on Normandy's beaches. So, what's happening, where and when? Major Lawrence Roach from the British Army's 3rd Division is the man in the know, and he joins us now from our studio in Bulford. Hello to you. Uh, the British Army's 3rd Division played a considerable role on D-Day itself, and as a result, a major part to play next week. That's right. Yes, we'll be returning to the Normandy coastline uh, with a a few of our wonderful veterans uh, where exactly 70 years ago they landed on Sword Beach, uh, which, as many of your listeners will know, is on the eastern flank 
of the D-Day landing sites. Uh, and, and I think many people picture it uh, through the, uh, the film Saving Private Ryan. Of course, that was based on Omaha Beach, where uh, the Americans had responsibility. But across on the eastern side is where uh, most of the, the British uh, assaulting troops landed. Uh, and on 6th of June 1944, the 3rd Division had responsibility probably for one of the most ambitious missions, the seizure of the historic Norman city of Calm. Um, and uh, we're going to be returning to uh, Sword Beach itself and uh, a little spot called La Breche, uh, where we have our memorial. Uh, and we'll also be conducting uh, memorial commemorations uh, in the city of Khan itself. And how are the troops actually feeling about taking part in these commemorations? Well, for, for us, it's very special. Uh, I mean, not least because the French welcome us very well. Uh, it's one of those spots where um, D-Day, uh, the D-Day sites are almost a, uh, a, a tourist venue in themselves. And, 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 of course, there's a whole industry behind uh, hosting veterans and returning troops. Uh, but for us uh, in the 3rd Division, it really is a, a special place for us. It's a place where um, we, we, had, uh, we had some very heavy fighting, um, and uh, even on D-Day itself, we faced uh, the, uh, the only real counterattack from the German tanks on the day. Um, and uh, it's, it's, so it's an important place for us to remember um, the, uh, what our forebears did before us. And just tell us about, about the highlights of these commemorations, the big events to look out for. Well, all eyes will be on Wiestrom, of course, and that's the, uh, the ferry port end of the, uh, the Normandy coastline. And that's where the world leaders will be on the 6th of June uh, with, uh, with quite a few thousand veterans from uh, the French, the British, uh, the Americans, of course, uh, and uh, the Germans have also been invited. Uh, but uh, to, to pick out a couple of personal highlights, uh, I think it will be, uh, for me, Harouville saint Clair, which is uh, in the suburbs of Caen itself. Uh, it was a village um, in uh, 1944, and it's one of these locations where uh, the fighting took place after D-Day. Um, and, uh, and, of course, the battle for the Normandy uh, continued for many weeks beyond the 6th of June. Uh, and in Harouville, they're going to be naming a park after uh, a British soldier, a private, uh, who was said to be the first soldier. Uh, to uh, to land in that village. Uh, and then a little bit later on on the 6th of June uh, in Hermanville, uh, there's a children's sem- uh, se- service at the cemetery um, and they'll be singing the British and the French national anthems uh, before laying a rose at the headstone of each of the British soldiers who fell in that particular village. So two personal highlights, but uh, there's just so much going on uh, in the Normandy coastline uh, mm. over those two days. Mm. And br- it's the place to be. And briefly, how many people will be attending? Any idea? Well, the British Legion estimates that there's just under 2,000 veterans left uh, who fought uh, at D-Day and through Normandy. Um, And we're expecting quite a few hundred uh, to make it across this year. Uh, And then from the British military, there's contribution not just from 3rd Division, but of course uh, 16 Air Assault Brigade will be there uh, to uh, look at uh, the uh, the sites that uh, they hold very dear on the east side of the Khan Canal. Uh, and um, Force Troops Command here also in Wiltshire, uh, they are helping with uh, all of the commemorations and, and helping those veterans get around. Christopher, um, your thoughts? Well, my thoughts are really offshore. I'll mm. tell you something. You go they to, would be, wouldn't yeah, they? Yeah, they would be. You know. But when you go to an airport, check-in, right, and you know the lanes that you have to walk back from Vors and round, and round the corners to get to, before you can get to the baggage check-in. When what we're talking about now was happening, the whole channel was like that. 
staggered lanes because how did you get all those ships, well, all the men and all the equipment over? If you just sent them over, they'd all go crashing in and hit the beaches, but they were lanes just like the check-ins, mm. baggage check-ins, and they, they were set up by Trinity Hearts, worked out so ships could do that, you know, sort of uh, come into sort of um, um, check-out number four mm. sort of thing, and in would come, in would come <laughs> a ship to land, land troops and equipment. Offshore or off this planet, your thoughts, Chris? I'm never quite sure. Um, Major <laughs> Lawrence Roach, thank you very much for your time, saying all the best for the commemorations, and you can hear extensive coverage of the D-Day commemorations next Friday, the 7th of June, on BFBS Radio and BFBS Radio 2 from 7am UK time. Uh, Christopher, things to look forward to apart from that next week. Okay, uh, Libya. Very serious. What's going on in Libya? There's a, there's there's the insurgency going on. There is a revolution going mm. on in Libya yet again. The Americans sending a thousand marines, in case they've got to pull out mm. uh, American people, and they're telling American people to get out. We're going to be doing the same thing very shortly. Not sending marines, but we're going to be sending a warning. Quit if you can. Okay, uh, and in Syria, a vote. Syria elections. The vote. Yeah, Syrians are ele- electing. Uh, uh, a new president, but they won't get a new president, get the same one for another seven years. In fact, they've already started electing, uh, the, the refugees were electing, uh, going to the polls in uh, Lebanon and Jordan at also, the moment. Also uh, voting in Egypt. Egypt's going to el- elect their former chief of staff. It's it's, it's sort of a, Mar- a Mubarak also thing with al-Sassi. He's going to get the job as president. OK, and just briefly, another word on Ukraine. Um, today week... It's very likely that the new boss of Ukraine, Poroshenko, and President Putin will meet. Will they? That they? will be the decider. I think they will meet, and it's very likely that uh, that Obama will get involved. Biggest important story of Ukraine. And that's all we have time for this week. My thanks to all our guests. If you'd like to join the debate, we're on Twitter. You can follow us at BFBS SITREP. And remember, you can listen again on our website, bfbs.com slash SITREP. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again next week. Bye-bye for now. DAB Digital Radio and Satellite TV in the UK. Online and on air around the world. This is the Forces Station. BFBS. BFBS.